Ephesians and chapter 1. Thank you very much for your patience there. Ephesians and chapter 1. We will read from verse 15 to the end of this chapter, and then I will uh, take us through the section that we are looking at, which is verse 19 to the end of the chapter. But we'll begin reading from verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, brethren, we are back to the series that we have been making our way through entitled Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And again, wanting to emphasize the aspect of celebrating. In other words, yes, this is information we receive for our minds, but it ought to warm our hearts and cause us to be grateful to God for what he has done for us. And we are still in the first chapter, second section, in which the Apostle Paul is talking about his own response to the news concerning the salvation that has come to the Ephesians. We've noticed that it was a response of praise and was also a response of prayer. In the prayer, he is basically asking, number one, that these believers may have more of the Spirit of God. And it's not so much more in quantity, but more in impact upon them. And this impact is primarily enabling them to know certain things. And this is experiential knowledge, a knowledge that impacts their lives. And we noticed that, first of all, that it is to know the hope to which they are called. In other words, the assured hope, the certain hope, which is beyond merely positive thinking or wishful thinking. If there is anything that any of us who are true believers can be sure of in terms of the future, it is the fulfillment of the promises of God in glory. Which is really the second part there as well, which is that they might know the great inheritance that we have in God that awaits us. He calls it the, his glorious inheritance in the saints, the riches of this glorious inheritance. And then thirdly, it is the power of God that is in us to get us to that glory, that we might know what this power is. And it is essentially that third aspect that the Apostle Paul then opens up 
all the way to the end of this chapter. And that's what I want us then to spend this morning looking at. So we're really making our way from verse 19 to verse 23. Now, if you are somebody who's been following this series, you will agree with me that I rarely absorb so many verses in one sermon. But as I was preparing, it became more and more obvious to me that this is but one argument that the Apostle Paul is making, and therefore try and divide it among a number of sermons, I will do a lot of injustice to you. Because basically Paul wants the, the full impact of what he is saying here to be absorbed in one sitting. And what is it? It is the extent of the power of God that is available to us. Now, why is it vital for Paul to want the Ephesian believers to know not just that there is God's power, but something of the extent of this power. Well, it is because of the forces that are aligned against God's people. So if we quickly peep in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 10 uh, to verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us something of these powers that are arraigned against us. He says there, finally, be strong in the Lord. Notice, in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. And then he goes on. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, against mere human beings. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the enemies that are arraigned against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, against you as an individual believer. So you would be a totally hopeless case if he did not give the strength for you to overcome these enemies. You would fail to get to heaven. Not only at the very end, but even today, now, you would be an absolute failure. So God's power comes to our aid from the day of our conversion all the way to glory. One important application that I have here, which I will repeat at the end, but it's worth pulling out of the bag right now, is simply this. Therefore, you as Christians, you do not need so-called powerful men of God. You don't need them. You don't need to quick, quick, constantly be taken over to, to them for so-called deliverance. The power is already with you, available with you. Let's quickly go through this and appreciate it. First of all, the power of God in us the Apostle Paul says, is like the power that God exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice, this power is not with some man of God somewhere where you should be going. It is in us, each one of us who is a believer. Let's quickly go back to this passage. Verse 19. We've just been told that we might know the hope, that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance, verse 19, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power 
toward us who believe. And then we are told, it is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is a real struggle for him to say. Because language fails to convey what he is seeking to convey. And therefore, he is basically repeating himself over and over and over again. Let me try and show that to you. Verse 19 is actually supposed to read something like this. And what is the powerful power of his power towards us who believe? And as if it's not enough, listen to this. According to the power of his powerful power that he has worked in Christ. In other words, he's, he's using different words, but ultimately he's trying to convey to us that this is, this is power unimaginable. If we were to speak in terms of dynamite, it's the kind of dynamite which, if you exploded, would not just destroy the whole of Lusaka, but would also destroy the whole of Zambia. It would destroy the whole of Africa. It would destroy the entire globe. It would destroy our solar system. It would destroy the universe. In other words, it should blow our minds completely. That's, that's the way Paul is trying to capture this. That this is the power that is at work to take this totally depraved sinner and bring him into glory. It is the power of the powerfulness of the power of God. And so he's, he's trying to, to, to find a comparison. And, and the comparison that he finally brings is Christ himself. That's the comparison that he finally brings. And here's that phrase, according to the working of his great mind. The phrase there, according to, is basically the phrase, the same extent as the same extent as. He uses the same phrase in chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 3 and verse 16. I'll begin uh, from verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that according to is to the extent of the riches of his glory, that he might do this in us. Paul uses the same phrase in um, the next letter, Ephesians and rather Philippians, but this time chapter 4, Philippians 4 and uh, verse 19. Again, this one is a very famous verse, but it's basically the same phrase. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, to the extent of his riches in glory. That's how he, I am praying, will supply every need of yours. So what he's saying then is this, that the power of God that is at work within us to bring us to glory, that power is to the extent of the power that he exerted to bring Jesus from the dead, to raise him from the dead. 
in, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, we are told that God actually exerted power to raise Jesus from the dead. In chapter 1 of uh, Romans and verse 4. Chapter 1 of Romans and verse 4. And then I'll take you to Colossians in a moment, chapter 2. But let's begin with Romans and chapter 1, uh, verse 4. That he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There was a powerful act of God to defeat death, to put life back into the lifeless body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an exercise of divine energy. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says the same. I want us to read there because towards the end of my sermon, I will go back to this Colossians passage as we especially debunk this ongoing catastrophe in Christian circles today of some men of God somewhere who are supposed to be reeking with power and we should be taking weak Christians to them for them to get all kinds of help, which in the end they never really get. They just pay money to these so-called men of God. But in Colossians 2 and verse 12, this power is brought out again. Having been buried with him, that is you, having been buried with him in baptism, and this is not water baptism, but spiritual baptism that takes place when you get converted. In which you were also raised with him, and here it is, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you have participated spiritually in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That power of God that took Jesus from death and brought him to newness of life, that power has invaded your soul and brought you from death to life in Jesus Christ. And therefore, water baptism simply reenacts that outwardly. But in actual fact, the real thing is what took place at your conversion. Now, we need to drink this in. That the power that raised Christ physically from the dead is the power that is at work in me that brought me, first of all, from spiritual life and made me alive in Christ. But that power continues to defeat any vestiges of sin in my life. It continues to do so. The power of God. But Paul doesn't just end with raising Jesus from the dead. He speaks about that same power now exalting Jesus Christ to the highest heavens. Putting him at the right hand of the Father. Let's quickly read that again in our text. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and then listen to this, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And the whole idea there is the extreme from which he took him to the extreme to which he placed him. The extreme 
of his humiliation was not simply that the Son of God was identified with our humanity, but that he was even identified with our death. He died our death. But then, his exhortation was not just his being brought back to, to, to life. It was not just that he was therefore ascended to heaven. It was the fact that he, in heaven he was now even ascended further onto the throne of the entire universe at the right hand of God. And as though to bring out something of that, he will open it up further in verse 21. But again, let's capture this. Because the whole idea in that statement seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The whole idea there is a place of honor, a place of authority, only second to the one who himself sits on the throne. That's how high up this power has raised our Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case you are left thinking that perhaps there's some competition there, in verse 21 he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Now, if ever the Apostle Paul was trying to, to, to be as comprehensive as he possibly could, it's here. It's here in our text. I mean, again, look at the language there. First of all, not just above all rule and authority, but far above all rule and authority. It's, it's like somebody who joins a, a race and you are there together Perhaps you're supposed to, to run the, the, the 100 meters race, and you are there together. And finally, the shot, bang, and you begin running. And, and, and by the time you're getting to the 100 meters point, that guy has even gone right around the entire stadium and is still beating you to it. That's the picture here. It's not just he's above, he's far above them. And again, he adds the comprehensiveness there when he says all rule and authority and, and power and dominion and so on. He's, the comprehensiveness is in terms of every, all, but again, the comprehensiveness is the way in which he is adding description after description. He says, the all rule and authority and power and uh, dominion, it, just adding one after the other. And then just in case, you have another title that he didn't add here. He says, and above every name that is named. So in case you know you wanted to squeeze in prime minister, he throws in prime ministers as well. Any name of, of authority. President throws in. Lords throw them in. Kings throw them in. Whatever title of authority there might be. And as if it's not enough, he thinks, okay, you might be thinking about, okay, that's in time, but what about in eternity? He brings even that in. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Come on, guys. 
The throne of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been given to him through this power is above every conceivable power that you can think of in this world, in this universe, even in heaven itself. That's the power. And thus we can speak of Jesus Christ as King of all kings. Lord of all lords. Prime Minister of all prime ministers. President of all presidents. That's who he is. And that's the power that brought him there is the same power that's at work to bring you to glory. To bring you to glory. One more step. And it is this. That the power of God in us is like the power of God exerted in subjecting all things under Jesus Christ. Subjecting all things under Jesus Christ. Look at the way he puts it in verse 22 and verse 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over again all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does Paul have in mind as he's speaking about all things under his feet? The picture comes from two psalms. One is uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And then the other one I will take you to is Psalm 8. But let's begin with Psalm 110. You will know the moment I begin reading it that it is one that in the New Testament is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, that phrase meaning until through you I defeat all your enemies. Through you. The Lord, oh by the way, if you have a Bible like mine, you will notice that the Lord keeps appearing in two ways. One is capitalized and then the other one is not. So when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, you can see there. Now, that's not a mistake in any way. The, f- the first phrase, Lord, is simply Yahweh himself, and then the second phrase, Lord, is Adonai, which is a general phrase that can also be used. Okay, so the Lord says to my Lord. So verse 2, the Lord, now that's referring to God, God himself sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, your being this Lord with a, without um, the capitalization in all the words. Rule, this is what he is saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That is the sinners being brought to salvation. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, notice it's capitalized, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, only Melchizedek was both priest and king in the whole of the Old Testament. He's the only one. And so Jesus has been made priest in that order. That is not just priest, he's also king. And here it is now. 
this, these words, verse 5, is now the small Lord. Not the big Lord, but the small Lord, which is now referring to Jesus himself, fulfilled in Jesus. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings. So these words are being spoken to the Lord with capital letters. Okay, and it's being told that the Lord is at your right hand. And what about him? He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So it's that picture that is being borrowed by the Apostle Paul with respect to Jesus that is at the right hand of this Lord, the creator of the entire universe. And while sitting there, he will destroy his enemies. He will shatter them. He will turn them into a footstool. He will have them under his foot. Let's go to Psalm 8, rather. Psalm, yeah, Psalm 8, verse 6. Although I'll read the whole psalm. It's a very short one. Uh, and we know the psalm, by the way. So um, just wanting to make sure we can see where it fits. Again, it's a psalm of David. And when David was writing, obviously he didn't know that he was writing about Jesus. He was essentially writing either about himself because he was the anointed of God or he was writing about humanity generally. But the spirit of God who was holding him in his hand was causing him to write about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. So when I read this to all of us, it's talking about all of us as human beings over the whole of creation. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your force to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So that takes us to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This was David looking at the way in which God has exalted us as human beings. That we have power. We are God's deputies over the whole of his creation. All the animals and birds and the creatures in the sea are at our control. We do with them as we please. And he's saying, wow, you've really honored us as human beings. Yes, we're a little lower than the angels, but look at the position you've given us in the whole of creation. Well, if we go to Hebrews chapter 2, we find that the New Testament um, Apostles applied this to Jesus Christ in a redemptive way. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I begin reading from verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, 
or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, you know where this has come from. Although the author here was saying it has been testified somewhere, we've just been reading where it has been testified. Now listen to him. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. That's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. There it is. So to, to, to them it was very clear that that psalm was about Jesus Christ. And then he says, we see him who was made lower than the angels. We see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might test death for everyone. So what that psalm, no doubt, is bringing out is again this entire process of the Son of God subduing his enemies. And the point there is quite simple. And it is this, that this final phase which is what history is about this final phase has been inaugurated it has begun if you're a christian today you've been subdued by this power you were once his enemy you were you hated him you lived in sin given a chance you would have dethroned him but he has subdued you he's brought you to himself you gladly worship him as lord in the day of his power he made you willing he subdued you and he will continue to do so across history until the end. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, when he was arguing about the final resurrection, this is the way he puts it. I begin from verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. I know I have given you concentrated milk, but you can go and revise afterwards. Uh, I just couldn't split it into three or four sermons. Just, uh, uh, we're going to lose the impact of this. Chapter 15. I begin reading from verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying, there it is, every rule and every authority and every power. You can't miss that language. It's been showing up every so often when we've gone to these texts. That Jesus is in the process, while on that throne, exalted, he's now by the power of God subduing his enemies across time. For him, verse 25, for he must reign until there is the phrase, he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed, which is the process of putting under the feet, is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, meaning God, is accepted. The one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself 
will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God, and there is the phrase again, may be all in all. The Bible says that something is going to happen in the end which today is not happening. But it will. Because that process has begun. And it is this. At the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow at his name. To the glory of God the Father. It is coming because divine energy, divine power is behind it. Back to our text. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is doing this in order to build his church. He's exerting that energy to bring this church, which is his body, to final triumph. Anybody who is fighting a Christian morally, spiritually, ethically, trying to destroy the Christian, or fighting the church, trying to destroy the church, is up against omnipotent power. That's what he's up against. Omnipotence. It's useless. Absolutely useless. It is this power that he refers to at the end of chapter 3. Back to Ephesians, by the way, chapter 3. Now, you remember I said this to you when we began looking at this section, that at the end of chapter 1, when Paul enters chapter 2, all he's doing is simply explaining what he has said at the end of chapter 1. That's all. He literally comes back to it at the beginning of chapter 3 and again gets he detours. And then again comes back to it at the beginning of verse 14, chapter 3. So it's really the same thought he is coming back to. I'm interested in that last part because you will see that that's what he's talking about. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, which is the whole point again, with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now listen to this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, again power, to comprehend with all the sense what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and here it is, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He who fills all in all may fill you. And therefore, you may know more and more of this power. To overcome sin and therefore to glorify God in your life. Look at his final doxology there, verse 20. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, there it is, according to the power at work within us. That according to, we've talked about, to the extent
extent of this power at work within us. What will it result to? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's the power. That's the extent of the power that's in every believer. That individual who was a complete slave to sin and wickedness and evil and every vice, who in that moment of despair cries, Savior, Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And the Lord saves him. You know what has happened? The power that can blow this entire universe into splinters has invaded that soul. And begins to clean up that soul from sin and evil and wickedness. Just the way in which Jesus was defeating the law of gravity and going up and up and up and up, having defeated death, and finally sits on the throne of the highest universe and with the power that he has begins to defeat every form of angelic power, demonic power, wickedness and evil in the hearts and lives of his people. That same energy is in God's people. And that's why while you are playing hypocrisy and hide and seek, God's true people are actually getting more and more godly, more and more holy, more and more Christ-like. And you are remaining still playing hide and seek. And there they are, giants in the and that's not all. Finally, they will arrive in glory. Back to Colossians, and with that I must close. Colossians 6. Oh, sorry, Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. What is he saying there? He's saying, just as Jesus was the foundation for your salvation, Jesus must remain the one on whom you build the superstructure of your life. This skyscraper of your life doesn't need another foundation for it to reach the skies. Jesus is enough. You don't need so-called prophets, men of God, or whatever the titles they go by. So that their power somehow can come to you and you can do something. No, 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 a thousand times no. His power is in your soul. And as you get to know his word and you continue in fellowship with him, you go to one degree of glory after the other. If you're struggling with lust, you don't go to some man of God to go and deliver the spirit of lust out of you. That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You go to Christ. 
That's the one you go to. Christ. And his power will deal with that lust and make you more and more godly. And friends, it's about time we got rid of this nonsense. Of these guys milking Christians out of money for power that they, to begin with, don't even have. And yet we, we make beelines there in huge queues to be made to fall over. And then we go right back to our sins. Jesus is enough. And Paul is saying, oh, that you knew what God is doing, what he has done in this great salvation, you would be celebrating. That's what you'd be doing, celebrating. I often hear individuals say, you know, me, I don't want to become a Christian because I, I, I don't want to pretend. I, I'm, I'm such a sinner. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And if you have that mindset, I'm saying to you, it's not about hypocrisy. It's coming to a savior. Those same sins that hold you in bondage, he will save you. You will be amazed at yourself. You will be surprised at yourself. So instead of keeping away from Christ, come to this Christ. Come to him. Come to him. And let the powers of the coming age turn you from a slave of Satan to a powerful servant of the living God. As he puts it here in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity, in other words, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And listen to this again. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, all power, all whatever, Dominions, they might be there. He who has power over all of them is in your soul. And therefore, instead of chasing after all this, come to him. And you'll be speaking in terms of everything, not I, but Christ who lives in me. He's the one who's doing all this. Amen.